Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Welcome to Inside the IC. My guest today is Dan Meyer, an attorney at Tully Rinke who specializes in security clearance issues. We're going to be talking about a recent directive from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to all military components aimed at tightening access to classified information in the wake of the Discord leaks. The general idea here, Dan, is that, you know, ever since these Discord leaks came to light, there's been this sense that this is going to end up affecting, you know, the security clearance process, classified information handling, but there weren't exactly specifics on how because the Pentagon had to get through this review first. Now that we have some details on the results of the review and the action memo from Secretary Austin, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the changes that we might see for security clearance holders, for applicants, and for folks who are just kind of affected by these different processes? Sure. Well, the first thing that everybody needs to do, both inside the intelligence community and inside the defense community in general, they need to understand that this is part of a much bigger story. You know, Netflix is putting out this um, miniseries on Robert Oppenheimer, and people have largely forgotten that Oppenheimer's case was the beginning of our security clearance adjudication process. And it went spectacularly wrong, uh, and the government really looked bad And so they developed what eventually became the adjudicative guidelines, which were informed immensely by the year of the spy in 1985, when the KGB ate our lunch in an awful way, the Cubans ate our lunch in an awful way, made our intelligence community, counterintelligence teams look awful. And so we understood at the end of the Cold War that uh, we did some good work on collection of intelligence in some areas. On counterintelligence, we kind of blew it. So rolling into 9-11, we have this environment where our system was still pretty rickety and we had to issue an enormous number of clearances. Everybody wanted to work in a skiff. It was the sexy thing to do when they did the pen rent of the Pentagon, they renovated the whole thing and everybody wanted to skiff and everybody wanted to carry their private cell phone in the skiff. It was just a crazy environment. So we've issued too many clearances. There are far too many clearances, but they need to be in place because categorized a lot of jobs as cleared that really shouldn't be cleared. So in that environment, the Secretary of Defense has an awful problem in that he's got just way more clearances to police and look after and do continuous evaluation on than any of the 17 intelligence community elements. And he culturally doesn't have the tools that exist at CIA or the DNI's office, the office I used to work in, the ICIG's office, or, or any of the, the siblings, uh, NSA, NRO, NGA. They all have cultures where every day you're talking to coworkers who understand the needs of a clearance. As soon as you get back into the DOD world, the culture doesn't transmit as well. And that includes to reservists, okay, uh, who were able to get access to information they probably should not have had access to. And then you run into the problems about what motivates them and do the adjudicative guidelines work if your local commanders are not doing their job. And that's the critical thing about this to share a situation is that there was a failure of security management at a very, very important level. And I imagine the careers of those individuals are not going to go well. So what's going to happen? Well, first of all, the, the statement from Austin, I think, is a 
CYA on his part because he's got to do something to placate uh, his peers over in the intelligence community who are going to be worried about working with him. Because while it may be embarrassing to the Pentagon to have a briefing slip out, it could be death to our intelligence operatives if information slips out. Um, and that's largely the problem. For the military, cleared information is all about protecting operations for the most part. There's a few covert operations running around in the Pentagon, but for the most part, it's about protecting operations. And that's pretty easy to do. Most defense intelligence, by the time six months later, it's just data. It's not really that important. In the intelligence community, it's far different. You can use Mosaic, you can use the various techniques the Chinese are expert in to put the pieces together and go kill our assets. That's what it's all about. So Austin had to put that out for that reason. But the restrictions that are now going to come into place have been long overdue because we overclassified the system in response to 9-11. So you've already seen these pieces in place and they're just going to get ratcheted up a little tighter. Continuous evaluation will go forward. Uh, if you're maintaining short-term credit levels higher than, say, 12,000, uh, you're probably going to end up with a statement of reasons and have to explain your lifestyle. If you do cleared work, you need to be maintaining zero balances on your credit cards. Okay, there's a price that comes with the security of working uh, with classified information. You have a great job, you get a pretty good pension, you invest in the TSP, you'll do really well. And in return for that, you need to, to live within your means. The drug issue is a conundrum because the nation is at odds with itself. Some people think a joint is no more than a beer at this point in time. But within CIA and NSA and DIA, the just say no culture is very active. And so if you have any ambiguity about illegal drugs, it needs to be out of your head and you need to stop. Everybody needs to reread Seed 4 every year. It's the samurai code of the federal workforce. It doesn't ask that much, uh, but it does ask that you not break the law. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of what Austin is telling folks to do is just make sure that you're following the requirements that are already out there, doubling down on a lot of things that are already in motion, whether it's continuous vetting, rostering people who are in access, uh, rostering SCIFs and special access programs themselves. Where do you think folks will see the major muscle movements based out of this from what we know about to share his case and then what's in Austin's memo? What are the holes that need to be plugged here in DOD specifically? So I was reading Stansfield Turner's memoir for a case, actually. It, was, it had some very interesting information in it. It was written about 1984-85, and he was reflecting on his time at the CIA and how sloppy they had become with security practices. People were taking work home. You know, there's all sorts of bad things going on that we wouldn't even imagine as being acceptable today. And I, I was struck as I was reading it. I went back and I checked in the front of the book to see when it was published. It was published right at, at the beginning of the year in The Spy. So the practices that Turner was reflecting on from a few years earlier uh, were still going on. In fact, they were going on uh, so, so much so that we had the uh, Ames and the Walker brothers and Anna Montez, who just got out of prison. Uh, so we had all of that happening right as he was recording his thoughts about sloppiness at CIA. So that happens when you get into periods of heightened operational tempo, which we have been for during the two wars. So now is the time to regroup. And what individual workers are going to have to understand is what they have assumed is the acceptable norm up until 
uh, this past winter they, is, not, is not the acceptable norm. That means you have to go back to seed three, the self-reporting directive. You have to go back to seed four. And you have to do it yourself as an employee because your security officer is not going to help you. Right? It's, the security officer is in a no-win situation where they're both policing the situation and they're supposed to be advising you. And you can't do that. So you're always going to get sort of strange looks from the security officer and sort of indeterminate advice because they don't want you to come back in six months when you've committed a security infraction and have you tell them, well, you provided me with the opinion on that. So I, I always tell people, look, you ought to retain counsel. I hate to tell people that, but it sounds promotional for a lawyer, but there are lots of people in Washington, D.C. There are advocates who are not attorneys who can help you out with those questions. I have a, a client who I think very dearly of, who has a long-term career in one of the three services. And I've been amazed at the lack of security understanding of that individual who's been both a civilian and in the military. And when I reflected on it, and I was a, a security manager for the Middle East for, during Desert Storm, and I don't think I knew half of what my job was about when I did that job. But I think we inculcate ignorance on security inside the Defense Department because people are afraid to be knowledgeable. If I don't know, if I'm stupid about the rules, I can then say, well, I didn't know. Hey folks, that's not an excuse that they're gonna take on an adjudication. You are presumed to know the rules, right? You're driving down the highway and you're doing 80 miles an hour, you are breaking a speed limit, probably multiple speed limits while you're doing that, just because you didn't see a sign that said 55, doesn't mean that the speed limit is magically 100. And those are the sorts of practices that are going to have to change. But I don't think it's new. I don't think it's new with this recent incident. I just think the Defense Department shifting from a wartime footing to a Cold War footing. And that's a whole different paradigm for security. We're not as lax or liberal on security issues when we're in a Cold War stance. Yeah, I mean, there's also this new Pathfinder project between the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency and the Air Force to share more continuous vetting information, made it, make it more easily and readily available to commanders and supervisors in all military departments. I'm reading from Austin's memo directly on a basic level. How do you think that might impact security clearance holders as maybe they move across different positions? And how, how does that change things? As we move to Minority Reports, that movie with Tom Cruise, uh, Artificial Intelligence, is allowing us to predict behavior. And this is already in play in a very rudimentary way. I would like to see it used as Austin anticipates uh, as a counseling sort of tool. And when I worked with Director Clapper, uh, he was sort of of a similar opinion that good security practices come when your supervisor, I used to work for the intelligence community, Inspector General Chuck McCullough, and Chuck and I would talk security practices all the time because he knew I was new to the IC. And he wanted me to understand the culture. And so he would coach me. And that's what every good division officer does to their sailors on a ship or their Marines or their airmen or their soldiers. That's what should have been going on in the Tasheris case. It obviously was not going on. And that you present to your people, and they are your people. You need to approach them as your people. You're responsible for their care and their feeding and their security practices. You present to them what is a good profile of action. Uh, and this includes what can be considered some very intrusive conversations in this America today. It wasn't 50, 60 years ago. But who you're dating could be a security issue. 
how do you broach that topic? I think we need to get some training for the people who have to have that conversation. But it may be that that young man or that young lady that you're dating is a security concern. And so you have to ask yourself, is it worth jeopardizing my security clearance to continue to have intimate moments with this individual, this particular person? Back to the guideline D issue. I add to my clients, I say, look, consensual, lawful, and don't record anything because even consensual and lawful behavior recorded could be used to blackmail you. But on the AI side, it's fascinating what's going on. Um, winnings and losings at casinos are now automatically transmitted through the Treasury Department's FinCEN onto the security officers. So if, you're, if you're winning or losing greater than $10,000, you're going to see a statement of reasons or maybe just interrogatories asking you to explain what's going on. All the credit reports are being scanned monthly. And it's a guess, but I think probably between 150 and 200 statement of reasons are going out because people's uh, credit reports are being processed by an algorithm and a supercomputer and profiling somebody as a security concern. So where you can commoditize and, and put metrics in place for security infractions, that will be easy with AI. The question is, what do you do with the more nuanced stuff, the character fault issues? Was that false statement on an SF-86 sloppy or was it a lie? Okay, the presumption is that it's a lie. You make a mistake on SF-86 and you've got a big old target on your forehead in our system. But that's harder to assess. And you're always going to have those cases going to adjudication because the adjudicator is going to look the client in the eye and determine whether they're a liar. And it's a very hard thing to do. But lots of this can be metricized and it can be provided to the local commanders or the supervisors. But then the question is, how do you have that conversation? And I think that our Defense Department personnel system is going to have to come up with something more than PowerPoint slides to train people on how to pull Johnny aside and say that certain aspects of his life have to come to an end because either he's going to stay on the secure team or he's going to leave because his lifestyle is dangerous. And again, that's Dan Meyer, a security clearance attorney at Tully Rinky. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Dan Meyer, a security clearance attorney at Tully Rinky, about how the Pentagon is trying to tighten access to classified information across the military in the wake of the Discord leaks. That point about a lot of this can now be metricized a lot more easily for local commanders and supervisors, especially 
with this idea that there's going to be these kind of rosters of folks who are in designated security systems and who have to be assigned to a security office explicitly now. Do you expect that commanders and supervisors are now going to be looking at these issues a lot more consistently and a lot more closely than they did six months ago and then calling people in or having their security offices audit people more regularly or things like that? So that's an expansion of an existing system already. Okay. So there is a cadre of federal executives who are indexed. Okay. So if you're indexed and there's a financial transaction or a law enforcement report with your name in it, then that's red flag. Okay. And uh, there's a red cell put on it. And then that person is then under scrutiny. Now, the FBI or Army CID might not immediately contact that person. Okay, this is where this is where it gets a little dicey. You may not want to call that person aside because if the person's a security risk, maybe you want to see who that person's talking to. Maybe you're going to do surveillance first before you pull them aside. So the coaching at some point may have to take a back seat to counterintelligence work. That's where this gets really interesting. Okay. We would really like to talk to John about that person he's dating. Oh, but the person uh, we see is making calls to a foreign country. Okay, why don't we get a FISA warrant on the person, find out what's going on? So John may be blissfully dating somebody and going to various hangouts in, in Alexandria and Georgetown, having a wonderful summertime. And then in the, in the meantime, you know, FBI counterintelligence has developed a whole profile of uh, John's date and uh, everybody that person knows in Belarus, Moldavia, or Russian ethnics in uh, the Baltic states. Uh, and then it may only become an opportunity to coach John after after he's been hauled in as a witness in a counterintelligence case. So it's going to be a balance about how that work is done, but it's already being done. And it's being done at you know GS-15 level, people with program responsibilities and above. So you just have to expand this to the next couple of levels down, which there are many more people in. And that's where the training is going to become important. You know, I don't want to go into details because it could give out information regarding monitoring. But my first six months in the intelligence community, I think three or four times a day, uh, the team around me that was, you know, there to coach me was making observations about my behavior. And I had to figure out how to change longstanding practices that I'd used in the Defense Department without a problem. And I always consulted with our security officer at the Defense Inspector General's office. But those practices were not acceptable in the IC. And so there had to be a lot of change as I, as I moved across. And, and some of it on some very basic you know, things about how you do your business in life, uh, how you drive home, you know. My boss, you know, so we were we had an active shooting uh, training at one point in the intelligence community, and my boss was a former FBI agent. We were having coffee, pouring our coffee in the kitchen. He said, so what do you think of the training? He said, well, I'm troubled by this. That was really great training, but if somebody wants to knock me off, they're going to wait till I'm driving on Harper's Ferry Road on the way home where there's no witnesses. They're going to be hiding behind that electrical transformer box I pass every day. It's the perfect size to hide a crouching sniper. And as I drive by, they're going to plant a bullet in the back of my head. And my boss laughed and he said, yes, if they're after you. But what you have to understand is that most people don't have to worry about active shooters going after them. The active shooters are after the building. And to be in the building is where you 
and that's here and that's where you want to have the good practices. You know, all of that uh, security training is heavily saturated in your daily workplace. And that's what the supervisors and managers are going to have to learn how to do. The good ones are already doing it, but there's a lot of people who aren't doing it. A lot of our federal supervisors and managers, when you hear the word security, they run for the corner. They just don't want it. They don't, it's, oh, it's not a personnel issue. I don't have to deal with it. So that's the training that Secretary Austin has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, that's a great segue to ask about this new Joint Management Office for Insider Threat and Cyber Capabilities that's going to be established up at the Pentagon. How do you think, you know, that program has progressed over the last decade or so since it's been established? And how might this new office change things, put more of a focus on those issues and put more of an emphasis behind what we've been talking about today? Well, DOD's Insider Threat Program, I was involved in the rollout, and it was impressive, and it was well-resourced, and it was well thought through. But the challenge developed very early on, and I was running the Defense Department's whistleblower program at the time, and I transitioned over to the intelligence community's whistleblower program at the time, and I stayed in touch with the Insider Threat Team because they were two competing agendas. The profile an employee or service member or contractor presents as they talk to an IG, as they talk to a congressman, as they talk to a reporter, and as they talk to an agent of the FSB is almost identical, okay? If you look at the technology and the, and the data that you get as you monitor people, it is very hard to tell the difference in the first blush of the data between somebody reporting a violation of law, rule, and regulation, and somebody uh, informing Congress of something, and somebody uh, leaking to a reporter, and somebody betraying us as a traitor and giving data to WASP in Cuba, the FSB in Russia. So as you move forward with insider threat, it has consumed the lion's share of attention because it, it, it's about external threats. And nobody wants to dive into the details on the whistleblower side of things because that's really about internal threats. And nobody wants to have the conversation that your supervisor or manager may be the threat and not some agent from the FSB or WASP. And, and yes, there are whistleblowers out there in the federal government who could be disclosing information that shows that somebody is the threat inside the system. So as you expand insider threat, you're going to figure out how, you're going to have to figure out how to balance that, or you'll be privileging the insider threat uh, protocol over that of the congressional liaison protocol, or over media relations, or over whistleblowing. And then as you do that, there's the unintended consequences issue, and this uh, really alarmed a lot of senior officials who now retired because they remember the days when they did insider threat analysis before the name was really coined when they just understood the lives of their men and their women. So you were involved in your people's life and you understood. They called you at three in the morning after the car accident and you had to go out there as a junior officer in the Navy and fix the problem, okay? No, nobody in the civilian world has to do that. If you're in the intelligence community and you have operations, you're always chasing around your assets because they're always doing stupid things, okay? It's just, it's just part of the, the, the job description. Increasing that level of security understanding to a large group of people becomes really difficult. And, and 
insider threat type cells and action teams and uh, task force are not really good at that. Now, if they are as good as the FBI's National Security Division at locating information of bona fide threats, then that's a good improvement. But that's a really small percentage of the actual insider threat problems. The bigger problems are public officials who don't know how to maintain our classified information. And that's not a snipe at the former president. That's a snipe at the current president, a snipe at the former vice president, several national security advisors, a secu- an advisor to Dick Cheney, there was a head of the CIA who had a problem. And all of those were, were what, what are called the unwitting fool paradigm, where your sloppy practices could be picked up on by foreign intelligence services, and they could exploit your sloppiness to get their information. I think it's going to be hard for a task force to, to go in and figure that out uh, unless they have inspection powers, uh, which uh, we had in the Intelligence Committee Whistleblower Program. And as soon as we started inspecting and started revealing how much awareness was not out there, uh, we got a lot of complaints. So that's going to be the tough part about it. And again, it's not going to be about creating the task force. It's going to be about operationalizing it. It's going to be the tough part of it. And again, that was Dan Meyer, a security clearance attorney at Tully Rinky. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.